Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzis. Thank you for listening. Congressman John Lewis knew the importance of telling and retelling the story of his involvement with the civil rights movement so that no one would forget the courage and sacrifice in the quest for justice. Before he died of pancreatic cancer in July of 2020, John Lewis told his last story in Run, the graphic book co-written with his longtime aide, Andrew Iden. When Iden joined me via Zoom last fall, he explained where Run begins and how it continues their graphic trilogy, March. Run uh, begins two days after the signing of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, If you've read March, you know that the congressman said at the end uh, that to him, the civil rights movement ended with the signing of the Voting Rights Act on August 6, 1965. And that's where we ended March. But it became clear that we had so much more story to tell, especially with everything that was happening in the world and in politics, and particularly around voting rights. And so we pick up the story just two days later. John Lewis is in America's Georgia. He's protesting a church that's refused to integrate, and he ends up being arrested and going to jail. And that evening, the Klan holds their largest hooded march that they held in South Georgia in decades. And it marked a turning point. It marked the moment where it became clear uh, not only that the forces opposing John Lewis and the movement, uh, they were using the tactics of the movement against them, And they were engaging in almost an immediate pushback against the progress that the Voting Rights Act represented. When you say using the tactics of the movement, would you explain? Absolutely. In the opening scene, you see Calvin Craig, who at the time was the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan in Georgia. He's preparing his followers for a march. And he's telling them you have to be disciplined. You have to be orderly. No hooting and hollering. No calling out. They were in many ways emulating the type of protest and civil disobedience that the movement had used so successfully, both in in Selma and in earlier campaigns. And you see exactly how, through their quotes, through their actual words that we were able to research and use uh, from primary sources, they were emulating those very same tactics. And it's, it's really startling and scary to see that. It is startling and it is so ironic. The scene you describe actually is sort of a prologue to the book. And on the last page of this prologue, we see the Klansmen pictured spewing their hate. And the last line on the page really grabs the reader. It says, the ink was barely dry on the Voting Rights Act, but forces were already gathering to fight back, and America's cities were ready to explode. I'm trying to imagine the collaboration that went in just to creating that prologue. Would you talk about the process? John Lewis and I worked together for so many years and and in so many ways that we'd become incredibly close as collaborators. And One of the fun things about that relationship was that it allowed us to explore chapters of 
his history in ways that I don't think we would have been able to explore otherwise. Um, and this is a great example of that because, you know, it starts with actually the newspaper articles from the South Georgia papers and pulling out the quotes and asking the congressman then, you know, do you remember this arrest? What did it feel like? What did it look like? Where were you standing? How did it happen? How did it unfold? How long was it before the police showed up? You know, all these details that you don't necessarily have to use in a prose book. You can describe it in a sentence or you can omit it entirely because it's not necessary in the same way when you do a visual representation of it. You have to bring the reader into it. And so the congressman and I would talk at night, you know, even in the most difficult scenes, it was so fascinating to see him relive these moments in his mind because you'd bring in these primary sources and you could just watch him go back in time and be there one more uh, moment. And then, you know, you take all of that, you put it into a script and it looks kind of like a movie script, but it's not quite the same because you're laying out panels and themes and links and, and emotions. And then our artist in that particular scene was Nate Powell has to bring that to life. And that's a whole nother process. You know, Nate, worked on March for so many years and uh, really took uh, Fury, the, the artist who continues from there under his wing. And together, they would do so much research to make sure that the shoes were right, the clothing was right, the cars were accurate for that time period. We ended up building a whole database of photo reference um, from that era so that when you see someone depicted, there's, there's no modernization of it, right? And that was something that was really important to the congressman as well, because you know, his colleagues used to joke, if you wanted to know what happened on any particular day, you called John Lewis. He had that incredible memory. And that was just deeply helpful to us as we prepared all of this. And so it ended up being a, a wonderful sort of round robin where John Lewis would weigh in. I would take that and turn that into something uh, that, that the artists could use. They would work on it and then we'd send it back to Congressman Lewis. And sometimes he would say, you know, that's it that's what happened. And sometimes he would offer a suggestion or point us in another direction. You know, it's, it's the collaboration that I don't think many people get to experience, particularly uh, not with uh, someone of John Lewis's stature, because he was so open and he was so kind and he was so giving of his time and was so patient. And he really loved art. I mean, he loved art. And so this was something that brought him great joy, particularly in those last months of his life. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that his love of art of Romare Bearden and Jacob Lawrence, his, his knowledge and relationship with fine art was deep. Yeah, he found it soothing and comforting, and he loved collecting it. He would always joke, if I had more money, I would go to that auction or this auction, and I'd buy all that. But he got to know so many of these artists as, and he was friends. I mean, Romar Bearden was someone who's he spent quite a bit of time with. It was something that I think stemmed from actually his time uh, in Nashville because there were these incredible murals on campus and there was such a beautiful black artist scene in Nashville when he was coming up. I think it really stuck with him. And I think also John Lewis had this fantasy. He would talk about sometimes if he had another life, he would have been an artist or he would have been an actor or he because he loved the drama. And I think art conveys that kind of emotional drama in ways that other mediums can't. If, if you ever went to his office, he had uh, two types of things on the wall. Uh, he had photographs of himself and his friends and his colleagues, and he had pieces of art. And in particular, he had chicken art because uh, he loved his chickens. Oh, yes. He preached to the chickens when he was a little boy. Yeah. And I think he always missed those chickens. I think, you know, in run, we talk about how he felt like he had been away too long and how he had missed his chickens. But later in life, he actually sort of replaced his chickens with his cats. And you would go over to his house and there would just be these roaming cats all around. They didn't come in the house, but they kept food out on the carport. And uh, I actually saw him uh, not too long ago. The cats are alive and well. It's just, you know, there's a soft side to John Lewis that appreciated the beauty of life uh, in mm. ways that I don't think people often saw because of how difficult the political challenges were that, that he was trying to tackle. Oh, but I think that gentleness, that empathy was what really drove his politics and his public service above all. 
Andrew, before we get into the events depicted in Run, I wanted to point out on the title page, the sign held by the Klansman reads, We must secure our children's future. Only it's not our children's future. It's A-R-E. I'm pretty sure Nate actually found a photo reference where that was actually their sign. And um, I think that's the hard part about reconciling some of these events now 50, 60 years later. The people who are marching in that Klan's march are people's parents and grandparents. They are not so far removed from our day-to-day life. And we live with not just the memories, but the echoes and the legacy of those actions um, in ways that are far more intimate than we're often willing to acknowledge. These people are real people. These people are alive. These people are voting in Georgia right now. And when you try and dramatize that, sometimes a symbol like that sign can tell you so much more about where people are coming from than any line of dialogue or, or any paragraph or any big scene. And I think that also represents what's so special about the graphic format using sequential narrative in comics and graphic novels is that you can convey a tremendous amount of information in a very, very brief moment of interaction with the reader. Yeah, let's step back. You spent 12 years working in the congressman's office. Tell us why he was so eager to produce a comic after you proposed it. I think it all starts with Martin Luther King and the Montgomery story. That was where I got the idea that there should be a John Lewis comic book. I think the kinship with Dr. King, you know, finding, I I wrote my graduate thesis on it after we sort of had the idea to do March and, and we found out that Dr. King actually helped edit that comic himself. Right. And so I think he felt like he was following in the steps of his mentors. And then over time, we also came to realize that comics had been an integral part of the movement that it had largely been overlooked. In 1966, you saw, as we depict in Run, Jennifer Lawson and Cortland Cox actually used the Black Panther logo in one of its earliest instances in print, predating both the Black Panther comic book from Marvel and also the formation of the Black Panther Party in San Francisco. And then, you know, we don't talk about it in this book, but I I actually did get to discuss it with Julian before he passed away. Julian Bond made his own comic in 1966 as well, explaining his opposition to the Vietnam War. It's actually a funny story. Julian, I, I saw him at this conference in Texas and it was the congressman and he were just starting to reconcile and um, Julian comes up to me and he says oh you're the comic book guy (laughs) yes sir I am and he goes you know I did one first (laughs) oh I love it (laughs) but I think I think that the reason the congressman embraced it so wholeheartedly though in the modern era is a little bit more direct than that I think it had a lot to do with the fact that this generation grew up on the internet and he recognized that. You know, I was also the congressman's digital director. So I was running all of his social media accounts the entire time he was in office. You know, that's where we where we really popularized the hashtag good trouble, which is now so ubiquitous. And we were using them in conjunction to reach a very specific portion of the population. This generation growing up on the internet, their literacy is sequential narrative, a meme or a tweet. These are sequential narrative forums just repackaged and put on the internet. And so if you wanted to teach them history and you wanted to teach it to them effectively and quickly, you really needed to embrace the sequential narrative comic book format. Um, And I think he recognized that, you know, John Lewis was always ahead of his time. Uh, He was ahead of his time in 65. He was ahead of his time in the 90s when he was opposing the Defense of Marriage Act and supporting the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, he, He was pushing these boundaries when other people were afraid to do so. And I think this was just another act for him where he realized he he needed to reach this new generation. You know, I mean, the idea came from the 2008 campaign, which, you know, the primary challenge, you had this, this young minister and an established state representative, both running against him, largely under the auspices of, of saying he was uh, out of touch, that they didn't know what he was standing for, what he had done, like, what have you done for me lately? 
And it became clear we had to do a better job of telling his story and explaining not just what he did during the movement, but how that guided his philosophy today and what his long view of history gave him as a legislator and how it made him more effective. And so that's what we did. We gave him a catchphrase. We, we developed that through social media by dramatizing um, his involvement. You know, like think about the mugshot tweet. When we first did that and we tweeted out that mugshot from him and Jackson, that was radical. People couldn't imagine a congressman tweeting out their own mugshot. And now it's, it's this kind of iconic image that people have used over and over again. And then the catchphrase of good trouble, like being able to sum up very complicated philosophical ideals and tactics into a simple phrase. It's not just about marketing or anything like that. It's about reaching people. The congressman had a saying, he would say, you have to create the climate or the environment for change. And that's what we were doing. And the graphic novels and the comics worked together then with that portion that we did on the congressional side to create an impact that I think gave John Lewis a moment to reinvent himself and represent himself to the public so that they understood not just how important he was, but how important the lessons of his life were and the tactics that he embraced and how that allowed America itself to change. Author Andrew Iden was the longtime aide and writing partner to the late Congressman John Lewis. Their graphic book is run. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you are just joining us, my guest is the author Andrew Iden. He was the longtime aide to the late Congressman John Lewis, and together they co-authored the graphic book, Run. Andrew Will you talk about the relationship between John Lewis and Julian Bond? John Lewis and Julian Bond were best friends. You know, you got to understand the professional nature or the relationship in context of the movement. Julian was the communications director. John Lewis was the chairman. Their relationship came from that dependence on each other. The congressman would always say that the movement was, would not have nearly been as well covered as it was without Julian getting the word out. That's what he was good at. Uh, he published these, these incredible publications called the SNCC Student Voice. And, and he worked with the photographers of the movement that we now think of as icons like Danny Lyons and others. Um, and that's how they helped tell the story of the young people. And I think looking at it from a research perspective, he did a fantastic job because he has all these primary sources that he put out there that we were able to utilize and, and to understand the quotes and who was where and all these sort of things that were important to us. But when you think about their relationship, it's interesting because they were diametrically opposed. John Lewis was this poor boy from rural Alabama, went to college at an American Baptist Theological Seminary, which is, you know, he had to work at night uh, in the evening, scrubbing pots and pans in the cafeteria. And Julian, you know, he goes to Morehouse. His father was a university president. He was, grew up in Atlanta, in the city proper. Um, his family was very well-respected and, and influential. And so they came from these two different worlds, and yet they were able to form a common bond that transcended that. And I think a lot of it came from essentially being forged in the trenches, working together in 
dangerous situations. John Lewis being on the front lines, Julian trying to get the press to see exactly what it was that John Lewis and his colleagues were trying to do. And it changed because, you know, after Selma, John Lewis was so well known, right? The president gives him a pen at the signing of the Voting Rights Act. And he's on the front page of the New York Times. He's on the cover of, of Life magazine, all these ways in which he became more well known. And then it starts to change. Julian decides to run for the General Assembly seat in Georgia. He gets elected. And then when the General Assembly refuses to seat him because of Julian's support of SNCC's statement in opposition to the Vietnam War, Julian then becomes the face of the story. He becomes a celebrity. And it was something he had not really fully prepared for. He was used to being behind the scenes. You know, there's that old West Wing line where it's like, you know, sure, you've trained a Preakness jockey, but do you know how to sit a horse? And now he had to learn how to sit a horse. And he did. He did very well. You know, you have, as we show and run, you have Dr. King leading these marches for him to the state capitol. His father, Julian's father, embracing him in ways that he never had. You know, he, Julian's father, I think, had been somewhat skeptical of Julian's involvement in the student movement. And yet there he is. Horace Mann Bond marching down the streets of Atlanta all the way to the state capitol, cheering and chanting just right alongside Dr. King and everybody else, including John Lewis. And Julian became the focal point. And it was a tremendous shift in their dynamic, but it didn't at that time affect them in that way. I think if anything, it just made John Lewis feel a little more alone in SNCC because he had lost his, not just his best friend, but his closest colleague in the organization. And as Julian's career develops, he goes on to be, you know, and this is something we, we'd wanted to talk about in, in further books, you know, he gets nominated for vice president at the 1968 Democratic Convention. And he goes on to be on Saturday Night Live and <laughs> yes. he becomes a true national celebrity long before John Lewis ever was. And if you look back, there was John Lewis beside him. When you see him at the 68 convention in those photos, there's John Lewis right with him, supporting his friend. Um, and I think we lose sight of how close these two men were and how much their relationship defined not just that portion of the movement, but politics in the South. Indeed. The book goes on to cover the Watts riots just, what, five days after the signing of the Civil Rights Act. How would you summarize the arc of Run? There are many events that are covered. Run is a chapter of our history that we've largely overlooked at our own peril. If we're going to be able to understand what's happening with voting rights legislation today, with our national discourse, we have to understand what happened between the signing of the Voting Rights Act and John Lewis's resignation from SNCC in 1966. So many of the battle lines that we're still facing and fighting along today were drawn in that period. This book gives you that insight in a personal way that you would not otherwise have and will help you understand and comprehend the underlying conflicts that are driving so much of the headlines today. With respect to John Lewis's life, this is a moment that gets left out because it doesn't fit with a simple idea that he was a good man who always was working his way up. This is about setbacks. This is about facing not just adversity, but failure and losing, being ousted as chairman, losing his organization, taking a moral stand against their own positions and resigning. Putting that in the context, I mean, we've seen the Georgia General Assembly behave in ways that, that boggle a rational, humane mind. And we ask ourselves, why are they doing this? But if we read Run, we understand that they've done this before, that this is not a new phenomenon. It's just got a different coat of paint on it. And that's why it's so important for us to realize what John Lewis went through and to understand that he, as a hero, faced these setbacks and was able to overcome them and come back and keep going. Because as the congressman would say, you know, you have to be persistent and consistent. It's not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. And this book personifies that. One of the impressive aspects of the book is 
The women of the movement are given credit. I mean, they're named, they're portrayed. And even within the context of the graphic format, we learn who they are and what they did. That's been a criticism of the civil rights movement before. I think there was an element of the movement that had the propensity to focus solely on the contribution of men. But when we approached March and Run, our attitude was we have to highlight these unsung heroes. We started, I think, with Ella Baker and March and Fannie Lou Hamer and others. And when we get to Run, you know, there was a a wave of smart, talented young women joining SNCC, going out into the dangerous parts of the South, doing the hard, necessary work of organizing, registering people to vote, speaking in communities. And they've been left out of this narrative. And it's one of those things that is unfortunate, but it is fixable. And we are trying to fix that through RUN. And I feel like some of these people got to be my friends in this process. Jennifer Lawson, Corlin Cox, Charlene Kranz, these people who were working in SNCC, they never sought headlines. They never tried to get their name in lights. They were just trying to do the work. But the opportunity that John Lewis created by doing these books with, with us, you know, it gives us the opportunity to right a historical wrong and to make sure that successive generations of young people grow up knowing their names, knowing what they did, knowing their contribution, so that young women can see themselves in these leaders. And I think for me, that was particularly important. I was raised by a single mother. I saw what she faced uh, in the 80s. You know, this was a time when, when unmarried women could not get a checking account without their husband's signature. They couldn't get a mortgage. I remember being so angry about that. Why are you treating my mother this way? And I remember promising my mom I would be different. I would be better. And I don't think she ever quite imagined that I would express that through my comic books. But I know when she saw March and everything it accomplished and how we told those stories, that was something that she said meant a lot to her to see that, that I was making good on her work as a mother. But it's just, it's the small way in which I can contribute. I think we have a long way to go. And I hope we just open the door um, for more of these stories to be told and for more people to understand how important the women were to the movement. As the Congressman would say, without the women organizing, doing the hard work, the civil rights movement would have been like a bird without wings. I read somewhere, I forget where, that you said you might even run for office yourself. Do you still entertain the thought? The Congressman was always very encouraging of, of that. I feel a deep need uh, to continue public service. I made a deliberate choice after I graduated from college to go into public service. I, I don't think I want to be a staffer anymore. I don't know how you go staff someone after you spent so long with John Lewis. But I think, you know, the message of run is quite clear. We need more public servants. We need to take this activist generation that I think John Lewis helped create through March, and we need to help them become public servants because I think we can all agree that we need better people to vote for. We need good people on the ballot. We're fighting for the right to vote, but what happens once we show up? Who are we voting for? We need better people. And I hope that if there is an opportunity for me to serve, I, I hope I can find a place where I can keep the Congressman's spirit alive and continue fighting for the causes that we spent so many years of the last decade and a half fighting for and continue on that work. Run is published as Run Book One. Will there be others? The congressman and I finished two scripts. It takes us basically to 1970, and I'd outlined a third. I think right now we're all relieved to have finished and still dealing with our grief. I mean, there's an Im immense emotional toll to making these, especially since the congressman's passed. We've put off deciding what it is we're going to do next. We've decided as much that we will have to come to a Quaker consensus, as the Congressman <laughs> would call it, on what to do. Always a man of God. Right. 
it's it's a decision not just for me but for Nate and uh, Fury and John Miles, Congressman's son. What is the right thing to do? And are we emotionally and physically capable of doing it? And when we are, I think um, then then we'll 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 get back to it. But for right now, right now we're all trying to just heal. You've talked about growing up the child of a single mother. And I read that John Lewis was essentially your father figure. Andrew, how have you dealt with grieving him? It's been really hard. I try and think about the good times. I'll never forget Congressman Lewis and my mother going back to my high school. I'd gone to this school on a scholarship. They kind of, they knew I was smart. They let me in and they covered what we couldn't afford. But I always felt kind of like an outsider. Uh, my father was a Turkish Muslim immigrant. Nobody could pronounce my last name. They didn't understand why I didn't have a father, things like that. And uh, the congressman, we're giving our talk to these prep school kids, right? And, and they're living a life that I could never even imagine uh, of privilege. And he calls out to my mom. And he says, I want you to know, none of us would be here today if it was not for this woman. And he makes my mom stand up and she's crying and I'm crying. And everybody in that room that I think she felt like her whole life had never accepted her. They stood up and they applauded her. A congressman gave me that moment. I remember them sitting outside after the event was over. And um, I, I made them take a picture together. It's the only photo I have of what I think of as my parents. And um, I guess the thing I have to remember is that I knew true love. I knew what it was to be loved by a mother and a father, by people who cared. And even if it was for a brief period, not all of us get to know that love. And so that's why I carry on with these books, because they love them. And it brought them so much joy. And I tell my mother's stories. I tell the congressman's stories. And that keeps them alive to me. I mean, look, the, the long and short of it is I'm still healing. But I know from John Lewis's life that we do heal. John Lewis lost his mentors. He lost Dr. King. He lost Bobby Kennedy. And he picked himself back up. He continued his public service. And then he became the congressman that we all came to know and love. And we have to remember that, and I try and remember that in these hard moments, that this is a part of life. Loss is a part of life. If you let it consume you, you're not honoring all of those who gave you that life, that you have to keep going. And sometimes it takes a little while to heal, but I think whatever I have to offer, it is because of John Lewis and because of my mother. That's who I want to keep fighting for whether it's for my books or whether it's in office. Andrew Iden, thank you so much for sharing this extraordinary story of your life and work with Congressman John Lewis. And congratulations on Run. It's beautiful. Oh, thank you so much, Lois. I mean, this has been, um, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate to have had John Lewis in my life and to have had this opportunity to, to tell his story. I only wish he was still here to keep telling us that we have to keep pushing, we have to keep pulling. I can only imagine the depth of your grief because those of us who only knew him from his public service feel a tremendous sense of loss. I know it wasn't easy to talk about Andrew. Thank you again. Thank you for, as a congressman would say, spreading the good word. Andrew Iden co-authored the graphic book, Run, with the late U.S. Congressman, the Honorable John Lewis. In our conversation, Iden spoke to the role of women in the civil rights movement and the importance of sharing their stories. Coming up, the film Behind the Movement it tells the story of Rosa Parks, and we'll revisit my interview with two of the movie's lead actors. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE.
is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Rosa Parks became a hero of the civil rights era and history after refusing to give up her seat on a bus to a white male passenger. The TV movie Behind the Movement explores the days after her arrest and the immediate impact of her action. When the film was released in 2018, Meta Golding, who plays Rosa Parks, and actor Isaiah Washington, who portrays Edgar E.D. Nixon, joined me in the WABE studios. Here's Meta Golding discussing what it was like to get into the mind of such a well-known historical figure. At first, it was really daunting because she is such an icon. Uh, But then as I entered into my research with her, I really tried to take it from a perspective of a regular woman living in the 50s. She was a seamstress. She was what I didn't know, and I don't think a lot of people knew, is that by the time she refused to give up her seat, she was a seasoned activist. So it was very interesting to put myself in that time. Her grandparents were born slaves, and she was raised by her her mother, but also her grandparents. So slavery was very much something that they talked about. Her grandfather was an activist himself. So it was interesting to learn her perspective and to also feel what it felt like to be in the segregated South in the 50s. And also, I think that Mrs. Parks, she was very courageous. She was kind of raised to be an activist, but she was also a woman who had a very strong faith. Always says that she got her courage from her faith. And that was certainly something that, you know, was common throughout the movement. I mean, Dr. Martin Luther King, Andy Young, I mean, these were people strongly rooted in faith, in the Bible, in the true meaning of the Judeo-Christian tradition and care for humanity. I say, what discoveries did you make about E.D. Nixon? I didn't know that he existed. Aha! Um, I had no idea that he was as prominent as he was. Uh, I had been uh, trying to desegregate many things in Montgomery, Alabama, which is a very difficult thing to do considering it's the the cradle of the Confederacy. Yeah. Uh, This man had a lot of courage. And apparently had been after uh, changing laws and trying to get to the <laughs> marching, I think, like 75 people to the court to get their right to vote. This was back in the 40s. Going on this wonderful journey, just learning about how much he contributed to just Montgomery, Alabama, uh, long before the bus boycott. This man had been actively with A. Philip Randolph, a good friend of his, very powerful. But what I was able to really uh, you know, glean from all of it is that he was separate from the mercantile system there. He didn't have to rely on his living. He didn't have to rely on that city. He mm-hmm. was working successfully with the George Pullman Company. He was a part of asset of the first president creating the, uh, the Brotherhood Sleeping Porters Union. Which was a a tremendous achievement itself. Right. So everyone really, you know, attribute their uh, contributions to that industry as creating the first black middle class. But he was also an outsider, as he said. He was an outsider in many ways. And I think my theory is because once he had access to travel outside of Montgomery, he was able to see all the things that could possibly be changed. Indeed. and have changed around the country. Extraordinary person that, unfortunately, I didn't know who he was. Well, more people will know him, <laughs> that is clearly yeah, important. Um, yeah. The thing that I found especially striking about the film was its subtlety. The subtlety of your performances, mm. the pacing. Mm-hmm. You're also very soft-spoken. Mm. Meta, you're Rosa is so quiet and sweet and dignified, but at one point she says, do not mistake my quiet for an absence of feeling or anxiety. Mm-hmm. Let's listen to a clip, and I think this gives us some 
further insight into her action, which now became the cornerstone. This is the school portion. When I was a little girl, we didn't have a school bus, so we'd walk two miles along the side of the road every morning and afternoon. The white children would ride past us in their big, shiny bus. And they'd throw trash outside the window trying to hit us. So, when we, when we would see him coming toward us, we'd step off the side of the road and into the field with the apple cores and bottles couldn't reach us. I'm not stepping off the road anymore. Mm-mm. Not for anyone. Matter there was stunning. And again, this captures the pace, which is not brushed. There is nothing theatrical. You are not playing to people sitting in a theater kind of restless. Well, you know, it was, especially when we shot the bus scene, it was a challenge because we actually shot on the actual bus. Yeah, what was that like? Amazing. And uh, the extras and the grips, there was really a sense of sacredness that we were actually touching history. But I had to fight it a little bit because I really wanted to portray the immediacy of just the human being, just that she was a woman who just wasn't gonna give up her seat. It was one act, and it was between a, a woman and a bus driver, and her saying, no, I'm human, I have dignity, I deserve, and it was simple and pure. And so I tried not to play, you know, we always think, oh, these big icons. At the time, she was a seamstress. She was just a woman who had had enough. And I just wanted to show this human being rather than an icon who later she becomes. Yes, and I say, I guess this would go to you. Nixon really saw Rosa as an opportunity. Why was she the perfect person to kick off? Because over the years, according to him, there have been many people have been mistreated before her, including Joanne Robertson herself. From what I was able to gather from him is that in order to file a powerful, seamless lawsuit, they needed to have a litigant that couldn't be besmirched, couldn't be discredited in any way. Although there had been other people before Rosa Parks that had been arrested, uh, Mr. Wayne Phil, uh, Claudette Colvin, and uh, Mrs. Smith, all there residing, residing in Montgomery, they were all actual litigants. They all had uh, personal issues that he felt were, they would be discredited immediately in the press. Yeah. Um, so, Unwed mother, alcoholic exactly. husband. All those things. That's right. um, let's things. listen to Isaiah Washington <laughs> as E.D. Nixon oh, okay. in his moment okay. of opportunity. <laughs> this is awesome. This is awesome. Three days. Three days is a lot of time to pull this off. I thought three days is all we got. People were going to be nervous. Look, you need to present it calmly. And just what is it you're trying to say? <laughs> that your temper can often get the best of you. Oh, that's good. Good. Can you see the smoke? Oh, I see the smoke. All right, well, that's good. <laughs> because you will be fooling yourself, Mr. Gray, if you think that people don't need to see a blazing fire to realize they are in a burning house. And you're the fire. That's right. Mm. I am the fire. And Mrs. Parks was the spark. Okay. Goosebumps. Goosebumps again. But I, I would say he was rather confident, wouldn't you? He was independently wealthy uh, for the standards. I mean, he also, he's the one that's been bailed out, Rosa Parks. Uh, um, everyone came to him for the money. 
uh, he had access to the money just as well as the women's uh, political organization, Joanne Robinson, but he had more access because he was around wealthy people all the time doing his train runs. So he had access to, in fact, <clears throat> the story goes that they, they raised over $400,000 uh, without being bonded. Uh, the community of the, the Montgomery Improvement Association trusted him with the money, so to get it, to keep it from being taken from them, uh, confiscated, he uh, strategically would take portions of the money and open up bank accounts uh, along his his uh, train line, and he opened up an account in Richmond, Virginia, um, in Washington D.C., in New York, and Philadelphia. He was a brilliant str- <clears throat> strategist. Yeah. yeah, so you know they funded it for what he thought was just going to be one day, but. It turned out being 381 days. If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes here with actors Meta Golding and Isaiah Washington, who play Rosa Parks and Edie Nixon in a fantastic film, Behind the Movement. So the Montgomery bus boycotts are another example of so much about the civil rights movement that was targeting the practical mm-hmm. money. This is highly strategic and it was effective, but it sure reflects miserably on white people's humanity or lack thereof in mm-hmm. these instances. What impresses you most about the work that went into organizing the bus boycott? Well, this was 1955. Uh, pre, a lot of people didn't have telephones, and also they didn't want to be found out, so it had to be secretive. And it was a very scary time. People still even thought, if I boycott, what will I lose my job? Will I be thrown in jail? If I'm thrown in jail, will they kill me? Could I be lynched? I mean, the terror that was happening. So what impressed me the most was not only the organization and the strategy behind it, which a lot of people think, oh, the civil rights movement, Rosa got off the bus, Martin Luther King made that speech, and now we're all good. Here we are. You know, so the strategy underneath it all. But more than that, I think it was the courage, and not just of the activists, but of the community of Montgomery, Alabama, at the time, that they all banded together, and that was the way they were able to effect change. And something that comes across stunningly in your portrayal is conveyed through the anguish and this image that Rosa Parks had when she saw the bus driver coming toward her. Let's listen to the final clip. The fear and indignity that they put us through must not dissuade us from demonstrating for our basic rights. There comes a time in our lives when we reach our limits, when we have to move past ourselves and our small comforts and choose to make our voices heard. When that bus driver started yelling and threatening me, I saw young Emmett's face. And I thought, how could we live in a world where a smile or a whistle can equal a death sentence? Yes, it it is far easier to have our heads down and just keep going on with our business, but that will only give them the power to continue to keep us down. They continue to limit our rights. They continue to call into question our very citizenship. But they will only continue if we as a community do not take a stand against them. This story is historical. In the minute or so we have left, why is it essential also to dramatize these events? Um, so that we don't forget, so that we uh, and that we we don't forget, and that we pay honor to our collective history. This is an American story. A lot of people were not. We we don't know this story, and it's important to remember our history. 
I once interviewed an author of historical fiction, and I said, you know, there are so many biographies of this visual artist that she wrote a novel about. I said, why set it as a novel? And she said, I think nonfiction gives us facts, as could documentaries. She said, fiction, in this case drama, can help us see the truth. Meta Golding, Isaiah Washington, thank you very much. It's really been a privilege to talk with you both. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Actors Meta Golding and Isaiah Washington. The film Behind the Movement is available for purchase on DVD and for streaming through TV One. It's excellent. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.